Anyway, I'd like to welcome those of you who might be here for the spiritual dancing program and give a note of encouragement to those of you in yoga teacher training who are probably starting your teaching sessions this coming week <laughs> and all of you on personal retreat and welcome also to our village members. <clears throat> so today's, oh, excuse me, I should introduce us. <laughs> I'm Tagini Lisa and this is Tiagi Peter and it's our joy to be here with you today. <clears throat> So today's reading from Rays of the One Light by Swami Kriyananda. How high should we aspire? Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramhansa Yogananda. The passage this week is from the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 5. I say unto you, that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. The easiest explanation for these words is that they were spoken in criticism of the scribes and Pharisees. Excuse me. I'm going to start that over. The easiest explanation for these words is that they were spoken in criticism of the scribes and Pharisees, particularly since Jesus was often verbally attacked by them and stood up to them fiercely, fearlessly. However, it wouldn't have been much of a challenge to the disciples who aspired to spiritual perfection to tell them, don't be like those who lack any such aspiration. Jesus, in fact, says only a few verses later, Be therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. What Jesus was referring to here, then, was the self-righteousness of the priests. Don't, Don't seek perfection, he was saying to his disciples, in the image you project towards others. Don't be satisfied with goodness born merely of ego definitions. The highest virtue is to transcend the very thought of personal virtue in the realization of God alone as the doer. Before this realization, even the thought, I am kind or I am truthful, is self-limiting. As it says in the Bhagavad Gita, the seventh chapter, yet hard the wise Mahatma is to find that man who saith, all is Vasudev. Thus through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. This reading is from Whispers from Eternity. This is Yogananda's beautiful book of prayer demands. This one is on demand not to be enslaved by the ego or by ego-centered passivity. I want to use my will, but guided ever, Father, toward the golden paradise of all fulfillment, for I would be infinity's smiling child, confident of being imprisoned no longer behind bars of fruitless desires and withered hopes. I would break the shameful cords of lethargy that have presumed to hold me and step fearlessly into freedom. Released, I now blaze my way through forests of every limitation and delusion. Oh, my little vain ego may strut proudly, saying, 
Behold my glory, worship me. But I will look through its transparent form, and behold thy unimaginable beauty, clothed in the subtle, the subtle form of the whole universe. The silence-tuned hearing of my soul will ignore that tiny, boastful masquerader, my little self impersonating thee, and I will listen rapturously to the wind-borne fragrant music of thine own matchless voice, whispering across the ages, I am he, I am he. This morning as we were meditating together, I could feel that here together in meditation, celebrating God and the masters, that their presence is here in the room with us and that the air itself is crackling and electrified with their presence. And that for all of us, if we concentrate and are receptive, our very atoms begin to hum and resonate with that song of eternity that they're constantly chanting to us, constantly infusing into our consciousness, helping us transform, helping us change. You know, I thought for Sunday service, this is a perfect time for all of us to let go of the things that limit us, our thoughts about the past, issues we have dealing with the future. Many of us have busy lives. This is a time to let go of that and be alone and still in our minds with God. I guarantee all those things will be there in an hour. <laughs> and this is a time to let God infuse us, to saturate us and change our consciousness. You know, I was thinking back a number of years that um, I think this was back way when I was in college that I met a young woman who was doing some service work. Once a week, she would go help someone with their reading skills. And in talking to her about it, she said, oh, yes, this is a big program. It's part of what they call Each One, Teach One. And I helped this one fellow uh, with his reading. He was functionally illiterate. And... What I do, actually, is we spend about half the time just helping him write his checks. That was actually one of his goals, is he wanted to learn how to write a check so that when he went in somewhere for his business, he could actually write the check himself. And I thought, what a wonderful service that must be, and a real help to the people that need it. And again, about four years later, I met someone else who was also doing this same program, and they told me quite a bit more about it told me about the fellow that founded it, a fellow named uh, Mr. Lubbock. Um, I remember that because it sounded like Lubbock, te Texas. And she gave me a little pamphlet of it. And I quickly looked through it afterwards. And I, a couple things that struck me. One was that this fellow, Mr. Lubbock, he had figured out this whole system of how to take a, a tribe or a culture that had no written language, only had a spoken language. And so all their history was oral. 
All their business dealings were oral, and they really wanted a written language because their young people were leaving the village and they wanted to be able to preserve their history in written form. And so he would be invited into these small villages by these people who wanted a written language. And he developed a system. Um, I figured he was probably some great linguistic scholar or philologist or just a brilliant man, um, probably at some big university. And he had figured out a way to take a spoken language and in one week transform it into a written language and train people how to speak it and read it. And then he would leave. And I thought, boy, that is a remarkable thing. And I remember in this little brochure, there were some pictures. There was one of some natives in a canoe, and they were all festooned and feathers and, you know, looking like they were taking this kind of elderly man in the middle of the canoe to dinner. <laughs> and he was actually going to develop the written language. And I thought, God, what a remarkable thing. Um, I wonder what kind of training he'd had to be able to do that. And I remember the last thing was there was a picture of, picture of him uh, at the end, this Mr. Lubbock fellow. And uh, I remember he had really wonderful eyes. In fact, he had sort of this twinkle in them, like everything was a big inside joke, like he knew the answer. and He was sort of waiting to tell you what the punchline was. And that's the last I thought of it, until about, probably about eight years later, I was here at Ananda, and Swami was talking about, Swami Kriyananda was talking about um, a Lutheran minister that he had met, that he said was an extremely saintly man, and one of his spiritual practices was to constantly remember God. And his life was having this inner conversation with God. And I thought, boy, that sounds, that sounds wonderful. That's how we should all live. And he talked a little bit about it. He got to take the fellow to lunch after his talk and spoke with him a little bit. And I remember thinking, you know, what a remarkable way to spend your life. You know, here was this Lutheran minister, you know, shepherding to his flock and his thoughts always on God. And I remember thinking about this fellow, his name was Frank Laubach, and I actually found in a used bookstore a copy of one of his books on uh, how to remember God throughout the day, and was reading through it, and I looked to the back, and there was the same guy again, Mr. Lubbock. Well, it wasn't Lubbock, it was Laubach. And this guy was a Lutheran minister. And I looked back through the book very quickly because I thought, well, gosh, if this is the same guy as each one teach one who has, the system had taught a billion people, that's billion with a B to read, that of course he's going to highlight it in here somewhere. And I looked through it and at the very end, there was a brief mention of it where he was giving acknowledgements and he was thanking people from the Each One Teach One Foundation that he had founded. And I thought, how remarkable. Here was this man, a Lutheran minister, who has done this revolutionary change in the planet by training all these people how to read, and yet his whole focus was on his spiritual life. And this, that's what he was talking about in this book as the thing that was most important. And I, it occurred to me in that moment, how could someone do something so profound for the entire planet? Well, of course you couldn't do it with your mind. You'd have to do it with God's power. And of course, a work that was that huge for the 
the future of the planet could only be done by someone who was channeling God's power, not their own, their own little tiny ego and braying about how brilliant they were. Very quietly behind the scenes, he was teaching all these primitive peoples to read and write in their own language and even people in our own culture. I think for all of us as devotees, we realize early on that part of the process of God-realization will be letting go of our ego. The things that define us, the ideas of who and what we are. I was struck by several of the uh, recommendations that Paramahansa Yogananda made to people when they would ask him questions about what they should do with their lives. One that uh, caught my attention the first time was a man who had tried many different professions and had sort of been a failure at all of them and hadn't enjoyed any of them. And he finally asked Yogananda, what should I do with my life? What should, what should my area of service be? And Yogananda thought about it for a moment and he said, you should be a mortician. And so he went and learned how to be an embalmer and worked with helping families and taking care of their deceased loved ones. And he was very happy. And finally, he was a success in his life. What a strange recommendation. And yet, that was appropriate for that man, for his particular karma. Another fellow had asked Yogananda, if Yogananda would help him select a wife. And um, he decided it was time to get married. And so he actually came in with a list of possibilities <laughs> and sort of started going through them. And Yogananda said, oh, her, no. Her, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, you know, I think, why don't you go think a little more <laughs> and send him away. And he came back and they did the same process again. He went through a list and Yogananda kept saying, no, that's not the right one for you. And finally, the fellow was sort of sitting there and he looked around the room and his eyes clapped on the plainest woman in the room and he said, well, what do you mean? I should marry her? And he looks over at her and he says, that's the one for you. <laughs> and the guy sort of stormed out and then realized, well, my master, my guru has said this is the recommendation, well, I'll get to know her. And it turned out she was a delightful person and he fell madly in love with her and had a very happy marriage. <clears throat> Many years ago when I had just finished my medical training, I remember I returned to Ananda. I had, uh, been here for several years and then took one year to do my final year of residency training in medicine. And I'd been back for about a week and really hadn't thought much about what I was going to do for the future. I'd finally gotten to the point where when I stopped moving, I didn't fall asleep. <laughs> I had spent a year of um, basically not sleeping, and so it took me about a week of sleep to get caught up. And I just happened to be sitting in... Uh, a room with Swami at the end of a tea, 
And people were sort of filing out, and I was still sitting there. And he looked over at me, and he said, well, Peter, so you're done with your medical training? And I said, yes, I'm done. And he said, you know, that's good, because you don't need to do medicine. <laughs> and I thought for a moment, and I said, okay, um, I, I don't mind. I'm happy to do it. I have the training now. And he said, well, let me change that. In fact, I would say, you shouldn't do medicine. And I was a little nonplussed. I'd just spent six years training in it and figured I'd probably do something at it. At least the community needed health care. And uh, he looked at me again and he said, no, I mean that. You should not practice medicine. And I said, okay. And so I spent about a year and a half where I just worked in the ministry office and um, did projects that were focused really in the ministry. And occasionally someone would come by and show me a rash and I'd write a prescription <laughs> for them. And, or I'd be at lunch and they'd put their foot up on the table in front of me and go, what's that? <laughs> and I actually had some very humorous experiences with this. A friend of mine from medical school called me about, this was about six months later, called me up and said, oh, this place I'm working, it's, uh, um, we're doing physical exams for the Air Force and all our medical providers just quit, all our physicians just quit. Is there any chance you could come like one weekend a month for six months and just help us? We just need, and it's very easy work. If you just show up and do this, you speak English, you're qualified to do this. Please, please, please come help us. And I said, okay, what do I, what do I need to do? Of course I'll help you. Um, he said, well, it's real simple. Just send all your information to our, um, our director. He'll go through everything, and he'll give you a call. And so they sent me the paperwork. I mailed it off to them, and lo and behold, a week later, I got a phone call, and it was this fellow on the phone. And he was sort of reading through everything in my uh, questionnaire, and he said, boy, this all looks great. And he explained a little bit about what we'd be doing. And we sort of got to the end, and I said, well, when would you like me to start? And then there was this very strange pause, and he said, you know, I've never done this, but I don't think you should come and do this. And I said, I'm sorry, I thought you guys were really desperate for help. And he said, we are, we need people right away. And I said, well, I can start right away. And he said, well, no, that's not it. I really don't think you should call it. You should come do this, you shouldn't. And I said, really? And he said, yes, and you know, and don't call me again. Click. I'm serious. And I had a few other experiences equally as amusing over the next year and a half, but that was sort of that. I just, other than a few little things, and finally it was to the point I thought, you know, I should at least have a few medical instruments here. If someone gets a laceration, I can just sew it up. I don't mind doing that. Um, and had the thought, well, you know, maybe it would be nice for the community if we just had one place nearby, and then even other people in the area. I didn't think that many people lived out here, maybe three or 400. And I thought, you know, if we did something very simple, maybe we'd see people like three mornings a week. It would be sort of, I could just do it in my extra time. And just a nice service for everyone, nice for our neighbors too. And so we put a few thousand dollars into renovating an old storage shed after we moved the, back, the backhoe that was in there out. <laughs> We sort of painted it and made it nice, got a few little things to, you know, tap on people's knees, look in their ears. I think we spent all of about four or $5,000 to do the whole uh, preparation. <clears throat> and I remember I had a chance 
to ask Swami, I said, you know, I was going to do this small thing and I just wanted to check that that was okay. And, uh, you know, I just saw the need for it and it would actually make more sense for me to do something there rather than having people come in all day at my other job. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, oh, no, that's a great idea, Peter. A great idea, Peter. You should do that. That's exactly what you should do. And I said, excuse me? <laughs> yes. This is, a, this is a great thing to do. I think this is probably going to be very successful. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Not, I just, it's not what I expected. So we opened our first day, and I figured, you know, we hadn't really advertised. We just put a little open sign up in the window. And I was kind of hoping maybe we'd see one or two people that day. Well, we saw 10 people on our first day. And that was the fewest number of patients I ever saw <laughs> after that. And it turned out we need to be open every day. In fact, my weekends were busier than the week. And I was getting calls at 2 and 3 in the morning with people with emergencies. And within six months, I couldn't do the whole thing by myself anymore. I needed someone else to come in and actually help see patients. We had so many. <clears throat> About this time, Swami came over to visit and kind of see what we'd created. And he came in the door and looked around, and I said, you know, Swami, I was having this idea. You know, maybe when I meet with patients, the first thing I should do is pray with them, have us both pray together and kind of get our energies blended so that, we, you know, the highest spiritual outcome can happen. What do you think of that? And he looked at me and kind of stared at me for just a moment and said, get x-ray. I said, what? He said, you should get an x-ray unit. I said, I don't know how to take x-rays. He said, you should get an x-ray unit and left. <laughs> so we did. We got one. So I had to learn how to take x-rays, develop x-rays. That was back in the days. It wasn't like now where it's all digital. It was actually you took an x-ray, you dunked it in a water bath, you dunked it in a developing bath, you dunked it in a, another water bath, and then you hung it up wet and did what they called a wet reading, because it was still wet, in a dark room. <clears throat> and for a long time, that was a big part of what we offered. We had, gradually, as uh, things became more available, we didn't have to do that anymore. But for a good 20 years, we took x-rays regularly. <clears throat> you know, I thought there was a tremendous lesson in all this around um, understanding how Swami had encouraged me to work with medicine. And I realized fairly soon after we had opened our clinic and he'd been very encouraging of me to do it, that really what he was talking about when he said, you shouldn't practice medicine, is he was telling me in your current state where you're defined by medicine, you've just spent a year in the medical milieu in a hospital, where all you see yourself as, as, as a doctor, you really shouldn't practice medicine. You should be a devotee. But as soon as I'd been a devotee for a while and sort of lost that identification, then it was safe for me to go back and pra practice medicine. And of course, that's what I should do. I had the training. I was happy to serve people. There was a tremendous need for it. But I could do it with the right attitude. You know, one thing that I have heard from other devotees on the path, and I certainly have felt this self myself, is what do we do if we don't feel in a certain situation that our ego is strong enough? 
or we feel that because of things that have happened in our past that we're not strong enough to be a full-fledged devotee because our egos maybe aren't intact enough or strong enough to let us grow spiritually. And I remember having this, con- this conversation with someone who'd actually asked Swami directly about this, where they'd said, you know, I feel like sometimes my ego isn't really intact enough to be a good devotee. How should I deal with that? And the first time they asked that, Swami said, love God. That was his answer. It wasn't go get psychotherapy. It wasn't um, go write down everything that's wrong with yourself and you know figure out how you're going to correct that. He just said, love God. And this person actually wondered, um, well, maybe he didn't understand my question exactly right. I didn't explain it very well. So several years later, they asked the exact same question again, and he looked at them and he said, love God. You know, I thought that was a tremendous insight into psychology for the devotee that really our focus should be on our aspirations. We all have limitations from the past that we're overcoming. We all have things and habits that have been holding us back. And rather than focusing on those things and um, sort of like playing whack-a-mole, trying to knock them all out or keep them out of the way or hold them all at bay while we're trying to get on with the spiritual path, really the recommendation that Swami and Yogananda have for us is to stay focused on our aspirations. Swampy said this very clearly once. He said, if you're going to have any definition at all to yourself, define yourself by your aspirations. Don't worry about the past. Don't worry about your gender. Don't worry about your race. Don't worry about anything else that defines you. Be concerned about who you are becoming because that is all that matters. And then you're Ego gradually just loosens its hold. It realizes it's not needed anymore. And bit by bit, it will relax and recede. And you become the devotee. You become the soul that you're destined to be. Well, how do we do this? How do we overcome? How do we transcend this hold the ego has on us. And fortunately, this has been well described for us. The key thing first is to meditate regularly and meditate with devotion, meditate with great love. The secret transformation that has to occur in all of us is being assisted by God's grace, is being helped by the Guru's loving concern for us And we don't have to worry about all the details of this transformation. God himself will help us with that change. You know, so much of what has come out in our scientific literature, particularly in the last five years, has been just stunning, the effects that meditation have on us. I mean, I I just thought it was phenomenal 30 years ago when we began to understand that meditation not only was very helpful, beneficial in terms of changing how our mind sort of functioned and how our thoughts functioned. But it actually began causing not only functional changes in our brain, but caused structural changes that our brain actually began to change in ways that were helpful uh, in helping us grow spiritually. 
and that you could actually see on all sorts of testing equipment how much a devotee's brain would be changed if they meditated regularly. Well, in the last five years, it's gotten even really much more phenomenal than, than that in my mind. I remember reading many, many years ago that Yogananda very quietly said once, you know, if you meditate, it will change your DNA. And I'd have to say, I don't see how that's possible. You know, we inherit this genetic code and about all that we can do to it is, you know, mess it up. You know, if we smoke or we do other unhealthy things that can damage it, cause mutations, people get cancer, or, you know, their genes express diabetes or other things. And I thought, I'm sure it's very helpful that we meditate. It probably has good effects in some way on our DNA, but it didn't make any sense to me that you could actually quantify that. Well, it turns out it has tremendous effects on our DNA, on the actual nucleus of our cells. And what has been shown is that, in fact, the health of our DNA, the robustness of our DNA, what you could actually call the biological age of our DNA, not just the chronological age. Like, I could say right now I'm 64 years old, okay? But as someone who meditates regularly, and if we pulled out and looked at the DNA material in each one of my cells, it might well show that my meditation practice, this given by the guru, has actually biologically kept me quite a bit younger. In fact, I, a number of years ago, I was being interviewed by the Times of India, and um, they were asking if I had noticed, because I was kind of in this unique position of taking care of a community of regular <laughs> meditators. And I would often say, you know, I have such a uh, a schizophrenic practice, because on the one hand, I take care of people who do everything right. They eat well, they get exercise, they even meditate regularly. They try to have happy thoughts. And then about, a, you know, almost half my practice is very indigent people, many of whom have horrible lives and mental health issues, and not all that many people in between. <clears throat> and they asked if I uh, had noticed anything unique about this community of meditators. And the first thing that occurred to me was, you know, I've noticed that people's physical health seems to be about at least 10 years younger than you would expect. Someone comes in and it says they're 55 years old, they look 45 or they look 40. And I wondered how was that possible? And now we know part of the reason that happens is the profound effect that meditation has on the very genetic material that makes up our cells, keeps it healthy, keeps it from mutating, keeps it young, plastic, and reproducible so that our physical cells help support the process of our God realization and keep us healthy well through life so that our mind and body, as Yogananda would say, are prepared for God realization. You know, when Yogananda talked about our central nervous system, he said, remember, for every person in every religion, their experience of God comes through their own nervous system. That's the one true unity between all religions. No matter what you believe externally is that your realization of God will come through your own nervous system. And just like all our nervous systems are unique, we are all neurological snowflakes. No one else has a nervous system exactly like yours. What Yogananda would have said is that we're all spiritual snowflakes. No one else 
in all of history of all of eternity will have the exact spiritual experience you will. In the end, our spiritual path is all unique and true only really to us as an individual. I know when Master would talk about uh, the experience of God realization, I actually have an old tape, very scratchy and grainy when you listen to it, where he's talking about this experience of God realization. And he said, you have no idea what tremendous power is in God. If God came to you right now, you'd be electrocuted. <laughs> and this billion watts of spiritual power, this billion watts of spiritual transformation is something that all of us can experience over time. I was thinking this morning in the reading that Swami had for us, it so much echoes this thought that God is truly egalitarian in how he deals with all of us as devotees, that he's constantly waiting, constantly watching, there to help us if we are interested, and quite happy to let us just work our own lives out if we're not. But the helpful thing is to remember is that we have so many blessings, so many helpful energies impinging on us, constantly helping us in this transformation. And if we ask, so much more is given to us. And if we offer that which, what we've, which we've been given to others, if we transmit this power, act ourselves as a channel of spiritual power and blessings to others. We will be transformed in that process. And this idea of an ego becomes less and less of a reality, let alone a definition, that it no longer is what defines us and tells us who we are. In the end, all we feel is God's light, God's purity, and God's love. And that's all that people feel from us, is a window to the infinite. And our soul is expressed purely as light, love, and wisdom.